Okay, so as we have heard many times this morning, we are learning from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through to 37. And if you're using one of our Bibles, you can find that on page 1040. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Last week, um, as Luke's already said, we began our second series on the Gospel of Luke, um, covering chapters 9 to 16. And uh, we covered chapters 1 to 9 in the first term of last year. And those chapters were looking at who Jesus is, uh, his mission as God's Messiah and bringing about a new kingdom to those who turn to him. These chapters, however... um, cover really most of what Luke records as Jesus' teaching, what he actually taught uh, the people, um, and therefore what it means to follow him in daily life for those who do recognise him as God's Messiah. Um, And this morning we come to probably, I would think, the best and most widely known of Jesus' stories, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not just known in Christian circles, of course, but it's known in society generally. Or at least the concept. You know, we have Good Samaritan closing bins, that sort of idea. And really the concept of being a Good Samaritan, I think, is fairly well known in, in society. Um, although it's been sort of wrenched away from its um, context in which uh, Jesus, of course, gave it. In fact, I'm not sure that I think a number of people would know about Good Samaritan without necessarily knowing that it was even Jesus' story today. That's uh, what has happened in our society. But the fact that we know the story so well, I think, uh, presents us with a bit of a problem. It's a problem raised by the parable itself. Um, The problem uh, we so often suffer, I think, in our lives between what we know on the one hand and what we do on the other hand. We've heard it so often, the temptation is just to sort of let it roll over us and undermine the very challenging nature of what Jesus here was asking of his followers. 
So the parable is really all about doing and specifically a, uh, a doing which flows out of knowing. And so I've simply called the passage today um, Knowing, sorry I'm back, Knowing and Doing as it's already there. Now, <clears throat> so if you have a Bible you might like to go back to Luke chapter 10, keep it in front of you. There's no real context here to this story. It just occurs out of the blue. Um, Luke just records it. doesn't seem to be something let in or coming out of it. No time or place. We're merely told in verse 25 that an expert in the Jewish law, a lawyer, came up and asked Jesus a question. And it's a question to test him. See whether Jesus knew his stuff. He was about to find out he did. The heart of the conversation here will not simply be about the answer to the question, you see, what we know, but much more importantly about putting it into practice. And so I've broken up the story around three key statements. If you've actually got a booklet today, uh, this outline is in there. You might like to follow it in that. The first has to do with knowing the theory, and that's in verses 25 to 28. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The lawyer's question, you see, is an important one and designed to test out Jesus' credentials as a teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, however, takes the initiative with the counter question. He says effectively, you're a lawyer. What's the law say? And the lawyer answers by bringing together two great statements of the Old Testament. To love neighbour, love God and love neighbour. To love God um, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and was uh, part of what was known as the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is probably the most fundamental statement of Jewish life and worship. But to love your neighbour comes from somewhere else. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Together, they really describe the essence of what it means to follow God and why Jesus elsewhere called them the two great commandments. He was the one who actually brought them together. The Old Testament had them apart. Obviously, in tradition, the lawyer knew they went together and Jesus himself taught that they were the two great commandments. They go together like hand and glove and they must never be separated. There's no, there is no love of God that does not issue in love for neighbour. Let me say that again. There's no love of God that does not issue in love for neighbour. It's why in the New Testament in, in 1 John 3, 17, we find this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
I think there's a danger today in our very experienced centred culture of narrowing love for God to what we do here. Prayer, praise, singing, that sort of thing. And saying, yeah, that's loving God. But in fact, that's a great mistake. Of course, it includes it, but it's a great mistake to narrow it just to that. Now, the expert in the law, of course, knew this. He knew his stuff, knowing was not his problem. He knew the theory. You see, he had it right. And so, in the first of uh, Jesus' key statements in the passage, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now, friends, the rules have not changed for us. The demand of God is just the same, to love God and to love neighbour. What becomes clear in Jesus' message is that to love God now means to listen to him also. Not just the Old Testament, but now to listen to him. And that will become very clear next week in Luke in the story of Jesus' encounter with Martha and Mary after this uh, parable. And through the, the new relationship we have as a result uh, through forgiveness of sins, we are released to love one another as Christ has loved us by the work of God's Spirit in us. The demand is not less. If anything, it's intensified. That's what Jesus does. And the human temptation, whenever we face an extraordinary demand like this, is to do exactly what the lawyer sought to do. I've said it, to make it more comfortable, to obey. In verse 29, we read, but he wanted to justify himself. That is, he wanted to justify his own behaviour. He knew the demands, but he wanted to be able to tick off his own practice as being sufficient. What we see here is typical of our fallen human condition, what I call the art of self-justification. And often, the more you know, the better you are at it. My family thinks I'm an absolute expert at this. Self-justification can find anything. I used to say to some of my students when I was lecturing the Bible college that if they, if they uh, couldn't find a way to justify their behaviour, then they just weren't thinking carefully enough about it. What about those of you who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years or more? See, there's nothing wrong with knowing. It's fundamental. We need to know what God is like, what he demands and that sort of thing. Um, and it's mostly what I've done as a pastor and a college lecturer, of course, my entire Christian life. But the more you know what God is like, his loving and holy character, the larger the understanding of the gap between God's character and my own becomes, my own behaviour becomes the gap between the theory and practice. And the temptation is to justify, to rationalise away the gap. Especially when others, like people in your own family, point out the weaknesses in your own behaviour. We seek to make the demand more comfortable. And so the lawyer asks the second question, second key statement, who is my neighbour? You see, if you define things well enough, 
may be narrow enough, I may feel that I can do it. Since the command to love your neighbour as yourself occurred in Leviticus 19, most of the Jews just saw neighbour as a fellow Jew, including um, maybe a resident alien who joined them, but no one else. And the Pharisees even narrowed it further to see neighbour as really a fellow Pharisee, that is, you know, someone who's a righteous and good person. They narrowed it to that. But the motive behind this was to make it doable, to make it more comfortable. And that's what verse 29 makes clear. The lawyer wanted to justify himself to make the demand more manageable. And I suggest the temptation uh, to do the same has not changed. When faced with the opportunity to extend the love of God to others, I'm afraid we often make excuses, which are really no more than a justification for inaction. I'm too busy. I'm not qualified. Someone else will surely do it. People need to help themselves. I don't want to interfere. But Jesus rules out any such justification out of court. No definition of neighbour is necessary. It's actually the wrong question. Instead of making it comfortable, what we need to ask is how we go about meeting the challenge. This challenge comes through the telling of the famous parable, of course, in verses 30 to 35. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, uh, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road. That would have been a rare thing, by the way. And he saw the man, but he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to a place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, he travelled. Um, as he travelled, came where the man was. When he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and, uh, and um, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Now, two preliminary things you, you need to note about the story. First of all, <coughs> stories Jesus told were true to life. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well-travelled and incredibly dangerous. It was about 27 kilometres and it was fairly steep, about you know, 1,100 metres from up. And in, just to give you an idea, Mount Loft is 727. So that's a fair sort of, this is no flat road that we're going along. Uh, and it was mountainous terrain. So here, if you think that looks blurry, it is. So don't worry <laughs> about that. The, uh, the main point here was to see, that's just a, a graph showing you the slope. Jericho down the bottom, Jerusalem up the top. That's the sort of slope and terrain we're talking about on this trip. And then the second one is actually for you to just see the sort of terrain it was. Mountainous, desert-like, um, a haven for robbers to hide behind and attack people. It was, uh, it was very dangerous 
um, indeed. So people listening would have immediately identified with what Jesus was talking about here. And then the story, the second thing I want you to note is that the story gives us very little by the way of details. Apart from the three people specified, the priest, Levite and Samaritan, nothing else. It's just a man, we don't know who he was, where he was. No motives are given for passing by because the commentators have a field day in trying to guess why, uh, what, the, what the motives might have been. But you see, they're not important to the story, the point that Jesus is making at all. So here we have a story with few details. Why? Well, simply because Jesus wants to make sure we don't miss the point by getting bogged down on subsidiary details um, here. We don't miss the challenge, a simple challenge to a call to boundless love. As I said, there'd been much discussion about motives, the priest and Levite. Was the priest uh, feared that if he helped he might get robbed? Did he think that there was ceremonial uncleanness? You know, there were things about touching dead bodies. He might have thought the person was dead. Uh, didn't Maybe he didn't want to get involved. It doesn't matter. The parable lacks, you see, those details for that very reason. The call is a simple call to love. First of all, it's a call to love irrespective of your position. No one enjoyed more status in the Jewish community than a priest and a Levite. No one. The priests were, in fact, Levites who were descended from the Levitical tribe of Aaron. You had to be from a descendant of the tribe of Aaron to be a priest. They ministered in the temple and they enjoyed the greatest access to God. Levites were men descended from other Levite tribes, um, sort of second-ranking Levites, and we might call them, say, assistants to the priests in the temple. So they had a fairly high status as well. In terms of status, there was really no one greater in Jewish society. As God's servants, surely they would help the man left for dead by the robbers. But instead, both passed by. By contrast, a Samaritan comes along and helps the man in an extraordinary way. It really is difficult to capture just how shocking Jesus' point, story is at this point would have been. You see, Samaritans had a Jewish heritage, um, but it was regarded as compromised and syncretised. Um, they had their own worship stuff in the north and, and, and um, had different beliefs, and they were considered enemies of the Jews and social outcasts. One writer says, eating with a Samaritan was equivalent to eating pork. Now, if you know anything about the fact that the Jews from the Old Testament were not supposed to eat pork, that was a real no-no, something forbidden by the Old Testament law. Then eating with Samaritan was equivalent to that. They were a group of people um, then that would be least expected to help this guy on the road. And it's difficult to find an equivalence that would bring about the same level of cultural shock as uh, Jesus does here. One of the problems of our day is that we have severed the story from its context and we've effectively turned the Samaritan into a humanitarian. That's what we've done, you see. Anybody can be a humanitarian Samaritan. But in fact, the Samaritan was a despicable person in the eyes of the Jews. 
So those who we might have expected to help didn't. And the one who we least expected to help did. Great love from a despicable nobody. The call is the same, irrespective of social status. No one is exempt from Jesus' call to love. And second, this is a call to love. Wherever you see the need. And I say the need, I say see the need because it comes in different ways today, doesn't it? You know, we're rarely not going to find someone along the road. Um, might be in a car accident or near one or something and, and you might see something, but, but uh, that's fairly rare. And as a society, I think we are much more cut off from the needs of people today in, in being able to see them. We're lucky if we have anything to do with our neighbours who live right next to us, let alone people who are needy in our community. What might Jesus' challenge mean for us today then? Say as a church community. Well, I'm excited to tell you the truth about our new outreach to refugees and migrants, for example. The ambassador's ministry that uh, Michael Stoomson is heading up. We need to get on board, friends, as a community. This uh, ministry can only grow and help people too if we think hard about how we can build relationships with refugees and migrants um, in our local area. But this is um, something that uh, is on our plate now that we could easily get involved with. At a wider level, of course, we've got our connection with compassion, which is much more global uh, in nature. These are things as a community that we can get involved with um, and should get involved with in as much as we can in order to reach out. And there are, there are other, plenty of other things that churches do too that we can get involved as a community. What about as an individual? Well, of course, there's um, the way we use our money. Uh, that's a fairly basic one. So um, I always think um, we should not only be giving to God's work here but, but seeking to give to some organisations that, uh, that cater for those in need I think of, for instance, um, Tear, Tear Fund, um, uh, which is one of those. And one of the things I like about Tear or some of these organisations is that they take the gospel of Jesus with them. Well, that's always an advantage then um, in being able to share that. But there are local projects and welfare organisations. Um, people we know of uh, need in our street, isn't that part of the problem? We don't know what anybody needs. Sometimes we need to look for the need because we're shielded from it so much. Meredith told me once of a work colleague who shared that uh, he'd been trying to work out um, how to evangelise his neighbours. And he discovered that uh, uh, one of his neighbours, his wife, was very sick and she ended up dying. And he asked what he could do and he found out that everybody else had already been doing it. He learned a great lesson. So the lawyer's question was answered in the clearest way by Jesus. The lawyer's question in the end was irrelevant. When Jesus asks in verse 36, 
which one of the three, priest, Levite and Samaritan, was a neighbour? The answer is obvious. Even he could see who the neighbour, uh, even he could see that the neighbour, who the neighbour was to the one in need. So there can only be one answer for him and for us to go and do likewise. Don't define who to help. Don't make excuses. Don't talk about the theory. Ask God to help you do it. To help you to be like him, like his son. The one who the Apostle Paul says had all the status of the Godhead, yet gave it up to die for you and me. Boundless love to any in need. That is our call. That is what we need to do. I told you earlier that um, with Scott's dad, Neil, we were in um, more college training together. When I was in college, trained for the pastoral ministry, one of, um, one of my classes was a preaching class and there was a, a man who took that preaching class who was just an excellent speaker and preacher. It was a great privilege to be in his class. And one of the most fearful things you had to do at college was to preach in the college chapel. I can tell you it was absolutely petrifying. Why? Well, you've got the principal, the lecturers, and here you are, a fledgling person, sort of learning the Bible and how to do it and that sort of thing. You wanted to cross your T's and dot your I's and make sure everything was absolutely perfect. It was petrifying. And even for him, he wasn't a college lecturer, he was a visitor um, in the college teaching preaching. And he raised the question of why he bothered to preach in chapel. Why would he come in and preach in chapel? What was the advantage in doing that? The most learned men in the country were there in terms of uh, Bible knowledge. Well, I never forgot the answer. Because he said it had nothing to do with teaching anything new. He never, in his wildest dreams, thought he would teach, for instance, the principal of the college, uh, anything new. Because, he said, the principal's knowledge had run rings around him of the Bible and what Jesus required. It was not because he didn't know it. He said it was because he didn't do it. Brothers and sisters, that's why um, today I'm speaking on that passage that most of you, and I've heard lots of times, not because the story is new, even the details. It's because we need to do it. We've just completed a series on the book of Galatians, haven't we? Do you remember at the end of that letter, it was in chapter 5, what the Apostle Paul said was most important of all. It wasn't circumcision, it wasn't anything like that, no religious ceremony. He just said what counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's all that counts. 
faith, to use Jesus' parable, motivating us to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you that we sit here today because of your love for us, because of your love shown to us in the Lord Jesus coming to earth, dying on the cross and rising again so that we might be forgiven and be part of your family just as we have introduced Sophie.